If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 103 if you're not already there. Psalm 103 is interesting in several ways, one being that it is connected to several other psalms throughout the book. It's connected to Psalm 25, Psalm 78, Psalm 86, Psalm 106, Psalm 108, Psalm 111, 112, and 116. You could take all of those with 103, and you can find a common theme and a common reference to earlier in the Old Testament. In Psalm 103, verse 7 and 8, it says... He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. And this is the point we're going to key in on, the verse. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Psalm 103, verses 7 through 10 are a reference back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6. And seven and Exodus thirty-four verses six and seven is the most referenced passage within the Word of God. All those Psalms I listed earlier, all in some form, whether longer or shorter than Psalm one hundred three, they all reference Exodus thirty-four verses six and seven. And not just the Book of Psalms, but the rest of the Bible elsewhere in various places. You could go do a study and a search. Um, the authors of the Bible continually call back to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. This word of God is describing to us what God is like. And the first time we get a description is in Exodus 34. So, um, we're not going to spend any more time in Psalm 103. Actually, we're going to go to Exodus 34, so if you would turn there with me and look at the original, uh, the original uh, declaration of who God is found in Exodus 34. Um, the reason we're looking at this this morning is we have just finished Genesis, a quick overview of Genesis, where we start to get the themes of the Bible where we have started to look at what is the story of God all about. And now we're going to start turning our attention towards Easter. It's fast approaching in several weeks. And so I thought Psalm 103, Exodus 34, they were a great place to start as we turn our attention to the cross. They were a great place to start to look at what kind of a God would send Jesus to save sinners to redeem the fallen, to fix what is broken, to restore and make new what was old. What kind of a God would do that? And it's easy, we could go to any New Testament passage and find loads of things to talk about that God, but um, oftentimes I think the God of the Old Testament is considered not that loving, not that kind of a God, or that he's angrier somehow, or that there's something different about him. Uh, But I hope that after today you'll notice that uh, the God of the New Testament, the God who sent Jesus, the God who came in human flesh, has been the same God since he created the world and since he created you and me. And he has been working this plan of redemption and salvation 
from the very first chapters of this book. So Exodus 34, there are five things we learn about God and understand that this is God, this, is, this isn't humans describing God, this is God describing himself. And this is, like I said, the first time God does this. The first time he comes and he says who he is and what he's all about. In Exodus 34, verse 5, it says this. So, so um, just for a quick background, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They are now at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up to meet with God. The people didn't want to go. They were too afraid. But God is meeting with his people, and he is... Uh, doing that thing he's usually doing that we saw in Genesis where he is renewing and making a covenant with his people and he is promising to be their God. So in the midst of that, uh, verse 5 of Exodus 34 says this, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the last, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped the Lord. What we're going to focus on this morning is verse 6. In the five ways in which God describes himself, and I hope uh, by the end you'll be convinced that this same God who was at Mount Sinai, this same God who, was, uh, who asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, this same God who is in the Old Testament, who sometimes gets a bad rap, is the exact same God who would send his son to die for you. So let's look at these words. Um, the New King James says merciful. I'm going to call it compassionate. Another way of saying that is compassionate. Uh, gracious. We're going to look at what gracious means. Long-suffering. We're going to look at what that means. Abounding in goodness, or what we're going to call loyal love, which is another way of saying it. And abounding in truth or faithfulness. We're going to look at those real quick and what the authors meant when they used these words and what God meant when he used these words to describe himself. So let's look first at the first way God describes himself. In my Bible it says God is merciful. That is the Hebrew word rachum, and it also means compassionate. God is compassionate. In our definition of compassion, we probably don't think of it the same way exactly that the ancient Israelites would have understood it, that Moses would have understood it in that moment, that the readers later in Israel would have understood. This word means so much more than what we think of. In ancient uh, Hebrew, rachum is also another word for womb, the very core of your being. And so to be called compassionate with this word is to be described as someone who at their very core has compassion for others. And there's a specific image that you are supposed to picture about God when you read that he is merciful or compassionate. 
and the image is one of a mother with a newborn baby and how they would care and give their life to protect and keep that baby alive. The first way God describes himself to his people is that he is like their mother caring for them. Uh, if you, the same word is used in the story of Solomon. If you remember the story of Solomon and the two moms who come, and they claim that this one baby is both theirs, and it can't be true. And so Solomon says, well, we'll divide the baby in half and give one half to each mother, and then they can go on their way and be happy. And we learn who the real mother is when she would be willing to even give up her child to save its life. And the real mother goes down on her knees in front of Solomon and says, she can keep it, this other lady can keep it, do not hurt my child. That's the same word that's used here. And in Isaiah, the same word is used, and we're going to read that in a minute. And throughout Scripture, when it, when it describes God as merciful and compassionate, with this word, it is this idea of a mother's love for their child. And we could spend a whole sermon trying to dissect what that means. What does it mean for a mother to love their child? It means they are compelled to protect them, compelled to keep them safe, compelled to help them grow, compelled to make sure nothing befalls them. That is what God is like. That's the first way he describes himself to his people now. Um, In the context of what's going on, there's a little bit more you should probably know. In Exodus 34, there's a marriage happening. God is marrying the people of Israel. His covenant vows to them are like a marriage. And he is promising to take care of them and to be their God and to protect them forever. And he's asking them in return, like a covenant, to make the same type of vows to him. But what's going on while God is making this covenant marriage, while the ceremony is happening, while he's repeating his vows to his bride, his bride is simultaneously betraying the groom. The people of Israel at this very moment are worshiping the golden calf. They have within moments of Moses leaving and going up to God, decided to follow something else, decided to make God in their own image, and decided to worship in a way that God forbids. And so they are breaking their marriage vows as this is going on. But God is so compassionate that while he is upset, and understandably so, he says, this is what I'm like, and so this is what I'll do. I'm like the mother who cannot let anything happen to their child, so I will continue to marry you. To the Israelites, he will continue to be faithful. This is the same God who sent Jesus out of compassion and faithfulness to save people from their sins. It's this God who would even go so far as to sacrifice his own son for those who didn't deserve it. He did it here. He sacrificed him, his, his, his honor, what he deserved. He sacrificed that and said, you know what? 
I am going to love you anyway. Though you are betraying me in this moment, though you are sinning, though you're doing the opposite of what you should do, though you owe me everything and you continue to spit in my face, I still will have compassion on you. You are still my child that I love. So when God describes himself as compassionate, that's what he's saying. And so it's no stretch that he would send Jesus to save us from our sins when we didn't deserve it. But he goes on and he describes himself. He says, I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. The Hebrew word here is the word ken. And the idea is favorable or delightful. Uh, Oftentimes in scripture, this word, this word for gracious is used to describe a gift that's given with favor or delight. So imagine if you've ever found that perfect gift for someone that you knew they would love beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you could not wait to give that to them. And the smile on your face and the joy you felt as you gave them something that also brought them joy. It's the same type of feeling. God is gracious. And he desires to give and he delights in giving favor, especially to those who don't deserve it. That's the ultimate act of grace, is it not? Giving someone, that's even by definition what it means, giving to someone what they don't deserve, not giving them what they do deserve. In the story of Jacob and Esau, um, we looked at the story of Jacob a couple weeks ago. But remember how Jacob stole the birthright from Esau and stole his blessing from their father Isaac and ran away for 20 years to try and hide and wait until things calmed down to come back. And when he comes back, he hears that Esau's coming out in force to meet him. And understandably, he's nervous. And he's afraid. And he's sure that Esau is going to kill him. And when they come, the brothers come together, Jacob falls to his knees, and he begs for this same word that God describes himself with. Is he begs for grace. He begs for favor. He asks Esau, don't give me what you owe me. Give me your favor. And how does Esau respond? He does. He forgives. He forgives him and gives him something that Jacob certainly never deserved. And that's how God describes himself here, that he is compassionate and he is gracious and he delights in giving gifts that you do not deserve. The Israelites are worshiping the golden calf God is upset and wondering whether or not he should even continue to partner with this people. And Moses says, Moses asks, Lord, will you give us favor because that's who you are? And God says, you know what, Moses, you're right. That is who I am. And then he lists who he is and he says, I will give them my favor instead of my judgment. If you were to look through the whole scripture and were to do a study of every instance of grace, this grace that is given, this undeserved favor that is given with delight, if you were to study that and look at everybody who did it, from God to to anybody else, you'll find that easily God is the one who shows the most grace within scripture time and time and time again. 
And ultimately, of course, that's shown in the person of Jesus. The Greek describes Jesus as charis, which is a similar word to hen. And the Greek for, uh, for Jesus is a gracious gift. That's how Paul describes him. That's how the New Testament writers describe Jesus, a gracious gift. And we looked at John a few, week, uh, a few months ago. We were in the book of John going through that book. And I can't help but think back to how many times Jesus came to people and said, I have a gift that you need that you don't deserve. The woman at the well. I have living water. I have living water that you can't find anywhere else and that you certainly don't deserve, but I want to give it to you. That's this same God from Exodus 34. So God is compassionate and he is gracious. And then it says he's long-suffering. Another way of saying this, some translations might say he's slow to anger. And this was in Hebrew... This was a, a phrase called uh, long of nose. God is long of nose, uh, which means ultimately that he's patient, not that he's Pinocchio and he lies. It means that they, they were keying into this fact that when you get angry, what does your face feel like? Sometimes it feels hot, right, when you're really angry. Your cheeks flush. And so... Um, oftentimes in the Bible, if you read where it says someone burned with anger, sometimes it says God burned with anger against Israel, or, or David burned with anger, or, or someone burned with anger, what they are keying into is that their face is hot, and their nose is hot. And to say that you are slow, uh, long of nose means that your nose and your anger does not get kindled very quickly. You're patient. It takes God's nose, if he had one, a long time to get hot. Not according to Moses, what Moses says, not according to what David says, but according to what God says himself. He's being quoted as saying, I am patient. I am extremely patient. I am more patient than you think I should be or you think I could be. I am am patient. I do not get angry. I do not burn with anger easily, quickly, for no reason, off the cuff. But when God is angry, it is because he is upset at the injustice and the sin and the taking advantage of people over each other in a way that is against his design and against his desire. And when he says, I want people to treat each other as image bearers in a certain way, and they decide to take the power for themselves and lord it over someone else and say, I am better than you, I deserve something more than you, God often gets angry. Or when people say, I am God, the God of my own heart, I owe nothing to Yahweh, I owe him nothing, I need nothing from him, God gets upset by that. But he's not acting in anger off the cuff. Remember, we looked at the flood, and nowhere in the flood does it say God was angry. But judgment had to come because God is good. And things needed to be cleansed. 
And that's also what's uh, included in this thought. As God is saying, I am long-suffering, I am slow to anger. It is because I am compassionate and gracious and good that I have to get angry at wrongdoing. I have to get angry at sin, and I have to take care of that problem. And oftentimes, as Paul points out in Romans, that means that people are allowed to suffer the natural consequences of their actions. And God says, if you want to stray, if you want to go your way, if you want to do your own thing, then go then go and do that thing. But don't forget that he is compassionate and gracious and long-suffering and willing to come back for you and willing to welcome you back home. And if you don't believe me, then just consider the parable of the prodigal son and how the father ran out to meet the son who was lost when they finally came to their senses and realized that living for themselves, living in their own power, living as their own God was never going to bring them fulfillment or happiness or the things they desired most. It was only within the house of the Lord, the house of his father, that he could find what he needed. And God ran, the father ran, to the son. What's also interesting here, and then we'll move on, is that God's slowness to anger, his patience, compels him to act. His compassion and his graciousness and his patience compels him to act for those in need, for those sinners And I say that, and I think I can prove that, because of who Jesus is and what he did. You see, we didn't do anything, humans didn't do anything to uh, compel Jesus to come and save us. It was simply because God's goodness compels him to save those who cannot save themselves and who are headed on the path of destruction. And so God describes himself as long-suffering and one who is willing to be patient and to offer mercy and, uh, and chances and forgiveness time and time and time and time and time again. This is the God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And then he goes on and he describes himself in, in my Bible as abounding in goodness. And another way of saying that is He is loyal in love. He is loyal in love. The Hebrew word here could be translated love, generosity, enduring commitment that is motivated by deep personal care. Enduring commitment that is motivated by deep personal care. A great example of this is the story of Ruth. Ruth, who, out of her loyal love to Naomi, decided to leave her home, go to a new land, try to fit into a new culture, one who was technically her enemy, learn new customs, learn new ways of living, and to care for her mother-in-law. She was committed to loving Ruth because she was motivated by deep personal care. That's how God describes himself 
And he is even better than Ruth because God could never stop being loyal to those he loves. You see, he doesn't base his loyal love or his compassion or his mercy or his graciousness or his patience on me. He doesn't base it on you. He doesn't base it on whether or not you're worthy of it or whether or not you deserve it or not. He bases it on himself, his loyalty to his own promise. So think back to the story of Abraham just for a second. And remember, and I think it's uh, chapter 15, where it's the first time there's this uh, major covenant. So God had promised in chapter 12, um, he had promised Abraham things if Abraham would follow him. And then in in, um, chapter 15, there's this formal covenant that they make together. But do you remember how that story goes? Do you remember what Abraham's doing in the while the covenant ceremony is happening? Abraham is asleep. And so, um, in, in accordance with the customs of those days and the type of covenant they're making, there are animals and there's blood sacrifices and there's this path that is made. And what happens in a covenant normally is God, who is the Lord, the, um, the one in power, making a covenant with their servant Abraham, they would stand at the end of the path and say, I promise to protect you, I promise to take care of you, I promise to do all these things for you, and you must promise to do all these things for me. And then the servant's supposed to walk along this path where there's halves of animals on the side, and they're supposed to say, now if you don't keep this promise, servant, then what happened to those animals and this blood that is spilled will happen to you. You keep, your co- you keep the covenant. And during this time in chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham is asleep. And what does he say he sees? He sees God walk that path. God makes the covenant with himself on behalf of Abraham. And so God's loyalty is to himself And I can't think of anybody else who would never not keep their promise than God, especially when he makes such a statement. When he says, I will keep it. I will do it. I know you can't. I know you won't. We're only two books into the Bible, and already God is saying to Moses, isn't this going to happen over and over again, Moses? Aren't these people going to betray me over and over? Aren't they going to stop keeping my covenant over and over Should I even continue? And Moses says, God, don't you remember what you've said? Don't you remember who you are? And the Lord says, I am the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in loyal love. And he didn't just say it to Moses. He didn't just say it to Abraham or prove it to Abraham, but he proved it to every person in the human race when he sent Jesus as the ultimate expression of his loyal love. Despite generations of sin and history of humanity rejecting God, despite your own personal rejection of him, he sent Christ for you. And so what else could he say about himself? (laughs) But he ends his first Description and the most referenced description of God in the scripture. He ends by saying he's abounding in goodness or abounding in loyal love and he's abounding in truth 
which can also be called faithfulness. The word here is amet. It means faithfulness or truth. And when we've said it already today, but when you say amen, you are saying a version of amet. When you say amen, what you're saying is that's truth. And so when we say that here, we are saying whatever we're saying about God, we're saying that that is truth. For God to be faithful, it means he must be reliable and trustworthy. That's what he's describing himself as here. That's what he's telling Moses is true about himself. And Moses is going to live a long life noticing and seeing and realizing and experiencing how reliable and trustworthy God is. How many times do we compare or does scripture compare God to a rock? Jesus says, if you would be wise, you would build your life on my words. They are like a rock And when the storms come, you cannot be shaken. They are faithful and trustworthy and reliable. Abraham must have known that God was faithful, was reliable and trustworthy. Because in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we see God come to Abraham and said, Abraham, take everything you have and go. And Abraham doesn't hesitate. He goes. There must have been something about God something about that encounter or perhaps previous encounters that were preparing Abraham to know that he could trust this God because he is reliable and trustworthy. Well, of course, what does Jesus call people to do when he comes, and he says in Mark, repent for the kingdom is at hand, and he calls people over and over and over again to trust God, to trust what God has been saying, to trust who God has been from the beginning up until now, and to trust that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants, of the promise, of the thing Jesus said back, uh, God said back to Adam and Eve in chapter 3 when he said, I will send someone and they will crush the head of the snake. That's a major promise made a very, very long time ago through lots of circumstances, lots of ups and downs, lots of human history. And God has been saying in page after page of his word, trust me, and Jesus comes and says, trust me. And then when he dies on the cross and he rises again the third day and he comes back to his disciples and he says, Trust me. How can you not? So this is the first description we get in Psalm 103 and those other psalms that I mentioned. They all share and reference this section of Exodus 34. And I think it's so important to know that this is what God says about himself as we look towards the cross and Jesus' death and his suffering and the life that he lived And his resurrection, as we begin to look at that in this season, know, know that this is the same God from all time who has said, I am the Lord God, I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am loyal in love, and I am faithful. And if you want to take anything away from this for what you should do, then you must be that same way 
Doesn't Jesus say that? Doesn't Jesus say, be like me? Jesus was as compassionate as God was and is, and so you and I are to be that compassionate. You and I are to be that gracious. You and I are to be that slow to anger. You and I are to be loyal in our love for God, for others. And you and I are to be reliable and trustworthy, just as God is. That's a tall order, and only through the power of the Spirit is that possible, but that's what we are called to do. If we serve this God, what is interesting about this God, among all the other gods and the other cultures that ever came before, was this God says, I'm good, and I want you to be good like me. And then he sent his Son and gave us his Spirit to accomplish that task in our hearts and make it possible for you and I to imitate this God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us who you are, describing yourself, showing us what it means, giving us examples of what that means, Father, of what it looks like. So, Father, I pray that when we consider who you are and who we should be, you would help us to live this out in our context. Father, as we go out this week to live for you, show us where we can be this compassionate, this slow to anger, this loyal in our love, this reliable, this faithful. Father, show us. Make your body more and more like you, Father, so that people in this world would see the gospel lived out, would hear the gospel, and, Father, would come to you recognizing their need to be saved and then would be encouraged to repeat the cycle and look like you as well. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that you are honored and glorified by what has been said this morning in your name. Amen.